type those in the chat box there um, before we get start or as we get started as we get going uh, I'll answer them as I go along um, if you'd like to save questions for the end you can do that as well uh, where you can ask them uh, with an open mic so uh, that's that's perfectly fine uh, just as a reminder of what we what we've been through over the last couple of weeks uh, you'll recall that um, Last week, David is moving into the promised land and he has, Absalom has been killed, much to David's chagrin, and David is moving back in and uh, the question is who's going to bring him back over and they're not quite sure and so uh, the, tri the northern tribes are kind of debating about how we're going to do this, what what's it going to look like. Is David going to kill us? I mean, that's sort of the implication you get from the text is that they're sort of nervous about what's going to happen. And, and Judah goes ahead and initiates the bringing David back over and setting him on the throne. The northern tribes take exception to that. And when they do, it starts this intertribal um, hatred, essentially, um, of, of one another and fear of one another. And so the northern tribes are battling against the smaller tribes and they're arguing back and forth. And, and eventually, a Benjaminite by the name of Sheba organizes this big schism where he is going to basically try to take the throne away from David and unite the northern tribes with him. And maybe not necessarily take the throne away from David, give him his throne, give him Judah, but take all of the northern tribes away. And so uh, he would have the vast majority of the people and Judah would be a, a small nation um, in existing in the same area, but it would basically be brother against brother. And so he gets a large number of, of people following after him and they're, they're off to the races and they're trying to gather up a ton of interest around the land. And so uh, David is thinking about what to do and how he's going to handle this. And so as soon as he gets installed in Jerusalem, he appoints his general, Amasa, who was the general over Absalom's army. And he has appointed him over his army in place of Joab. And he appoints Amasa and he says, listen, you've got to get all of the people together, as many as possible to fight. You've got to go after Sheba and you've got to kill him now before he unites all the tribes uh, against me, really. And so um, he, he gives him a handful of days. Meet me back here in just a few days. And Amasa cannot get it done. He, he leaves. He doesn't come back in the appointed amount of time. And so David sends Abishai out uh, who is Joab's brother, still does not appoint Joab to be at the, the, the chief of the army. He appoints um, uh, Abishai uh, over the army. And so he sends him out to go get to do what Amasa could not do. And Abishai and Joab catch up to Amasa. And Joab basically pretends to, he's kind of dressed in sort of a normal soldier's robe, if you will. And he kind of disguises himself, approaches Amasa, uh, takes out a knife that is sheathed on his thigh and stabs Amasa in the stomach and kills him right there in the middle of the road. And Joab assumes control of the military. And then under the power of Joab, the military takes off from there and pursues Sheba to uh, Abel Beth Makkah, and, which is way up in the north. And they... Uh, are going to basically demolish the city where Sheba is held up. And a, a woman interferes with their um, destruction of the city. And she says, you know, why don't we handle this a different way? Why don't we go and kill Sheba for you? And we'll throw his head over the wall. And as evidence that we've, we've killed him. And so she does and the revolution ends. And so really the, the, the bulk of the, uh, section of, of 2 Samuel ends there and uh, with the death of Sheba and an end to the threat of the revolt. However, what we have seen over the course of especially the last half of, San, of 2 Samuel up to this point is that David's kingdom is being torn asunder by and precisely because of his sin in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, the sin with Bathsheba. 
you, you we've you've noticed and you probably will continue to notice as you read through that really everything stems from that and the prophet nathan told david as much that that was going to happen god told him through nathan that look uh the sword's never going to depart from your house you're always going to be at war and at first that's with his own children and then we see that's also within his his nation his brotherhood uh his family if you will in the nation of israel they're always at war solomon's going to come along and he's going to lead israel to incredible prosperity such as it has never really been seen before in the past but um but in spite of all that solomon's eventually going to see it come under ruin and it's going to be torn apart and then that's going to be finalized with solomon's son rehoboam and the nation will never be the same again after that so there's going to be a, a period of prosperity under solomon but outside of that uh honestly even going back to david and bathsheba that that's that's kind of the heart of the falling apart of the kingdom so it was a short sort of a short-lived uh almost virtually ruined by sin and it and it really it always comes to ruin by sin it is always the story with israel's is the, the the kingdom continues to come to ruin because of sin and and particularly the sin of the king now we come to this section here in chapters 21 to 24 which close out second samuel and i wanted to handle them together for for a couple of reasons um, one, because you get some of these long lists of, of generals and, and things like that, that I don't want to just necessarily go through and read every night, but, um, and, and nor do I think is, is really necessary. And then we also get one long chapter, which is a repeat of Psalm 18, which I preached on a few weeks ago. And so, uh, I didn't necessarily want to go through that and take one week to go through that either. But another reason, another big reason, is because chapters 21 to 24 are often thrown in at um, the end of, of 2 Samuel, especially when people teach through 2 Samuel, as sort of an appendix, as if, that, as if they have uh, not a whole lot of value um, to the, the book of 2 Samuel or to the close of Samuel. And so you'll hear even some people will attribute second samuel to just an editor somewhere along the way taking a few random stories about david and just kind of attaching them onto the end of second samuel as if they have not a whole lot of value to contribute but what what happens is when you actually zoom in and you look at uh 21 to 24 or even when you zoom out and look at the broad structure of 21 to 24 you actually see that they're they're actually carefully arranged and that there's a deliberate structure to these few chapters these four chapters at the end and it demonstrates that there's a there's a purpose in mind to them being included at the very end because the big question that we're wrestling with is here at the end of second samuel is what's the state of the kingdom David is obviously coming to the end of his life. And though we're going to see David's last words, we're not going to see the David actually dying until first Kings, but he, David is coming to the end of his life. And the last thing we left off with is David sort of in Judah, Joab kind of presenting himself as a threat to the kingdom because he's sort of taken over the military what is he going to do? Um, what What is David's status amongst his brothers? And how are they going to respond to David's kingship and, and his death and David's son taking over the throne and, and all of that? So all of those are, are questions. And, it, and it, again, as we've been talking on Sunday and, and even Wednesday, here is this kingdom of God that's being established with a human king in David and we've seen that oh man it's just it's it's sinful and it's continually uh sin has its its clutches around the whole king, the kingdom as a whole and so what is going to happen to it it seems to be in tatters and so what we 
what we find here at the very end is a, a few things that you can see. I've just kind of put the structure of the last few chapters here on a slide. This isn't necessarily in your notes, but feel free to, you know, you can jot this down if you want to, or um, we, I post these, the PDF of all of these slides online at the end of this um, every, every night. So you can feel free to download it there if you want to. But um, there, there's this first section, we're going to see David dealing with the sin of Saul. And the very last section is dealing with the sin of David. So we see this, there, it's a reiteration, uh, this sort of parallel, if you will. Both kings that were kind of here that we've been dealing with in First and Second Samuel, both had these grievous sins that they committed. And uh, they're going to have to be dealt with. They're going to have to be uh, uh, resolved. And if they're not resolved, something treacherous is going to happen. And so it, it sort of reiterates to us, the reader, that God takes sin very seriously if you haven't gotten that already. If you haven't understood First and Second Samuel, it's, it, it's that God takes sin very seriously. And as we head into First and Second Kings, you need to know that, that no king is immune from having to give an account for his sin um, if he commits sin. And so the first section dealing with Saul's sin, the last section dealing with David's sin. Then we have these two sections where we get a list of David's heroes, uh, his, his, um, his, his generals, his people that are uh, you know, near and dear to his heart in his, in his, in his military as they deal with certain military uh, battles and people for whom David could not have made it had not the Lord provided them. That's, that's kind of the thrust that you get through these two parallel sections where we, where we see David's generals is David could not have done this had not the Lord provided these people as part of his kingdom. Uh, and then right in the middle, you get David one is this repeat of Psalm 20, uh, Psalm 18, which is in chapter 22, the whole of chapter 22, where David is looking back over how, gr how great the Lord's been to him and how much the Lord has delivered him. And then after that, you get this David looking forward um, and giving his last words and what his assessment is of his own life as God has allowed him to persevere. And so you can see the parallels in each of these, um, in each of these sections. And so, but as, as usual, if we look at something, this, this would be considered, and we've talked about it a couple of times on Sunday, this would be considered a chiastic construction. You may, you may remember that term terminology, but it's, it's basically what you're looking at here where, uh, the, the beginning and the end are parallel to one another. The next section and the the second to the last section are parallel to one another and then sometimes you get a couple where there's there's one basically right in the middle or sometimes you get a parallel right in the middle and i think we've got a parallel here right in the middle where um you have david assessing his life looking back and showing the lord has been gracious and kind to me even though i have sinned he has provided for me and then his last words, of course he will provide for me. What, what better place could I be than with the Lord? And what we see in a, in a chiasm or a chiastic construction like this is that the middle often drives home the point. And so we've got here the, the point of this whole section being, in spite of the sin of the kings, the Lord has been gracious and has withheld his hand of ju judgment in many cases in, in spite of the fact that he could have at any point, you know, thumped them off the face of the earth if he wanted to, I suppose. So it kind of reiterates that point, and this whole section is driving that home. And so we're going to go through it uh, a little bit at a time and just kind of see each section and how it does that. And we're going to read uh, large uh, sections of, of the text. So first, in this first section in chapter 21, we get this famine that is coming over the nation of Israel. The, by the way, on this slide here, there's two bullet points. The first bullet point you've already seen. So it's the second bullet point that we're looking at. Um, David is confronted 
with this famine in the land that happens for three successive years. And I want to read the text here and we're going to kind of parse what's happening here because man, it can be confusing if you, if you're not, uh, if you don't know what to look for here, but 21, one to 14, let's read it. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Uh, although the people of, the, of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement uh, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of gold, silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that he, that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the, son, the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Melanite, Melathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night when david was told what rizpah the daughter of aya the concubine of saul had done david went and took the bones of saul and the bones of his son jonathan from the men of jabesh gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shean, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up, up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones uh, of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Um, okay, so, boy, this is a, another gruesome scene here in, the, in this kind of, um, or this, this um, event. And so how do we think about this? So the, the Lord um, brings this famine upon the nation of Israel and David is unsure why. And so he inquires of the Lord, what's the punishment for? I feel like we're being punished. What are we being punished for? And it's revealed to him that it's because Saul had sought to kill the Gibeonites. And um, this is a big problem. And the reason it's a problem is because the Gibeonites and the nation of Israel in the time of Joshua had made a treaty with the Gibeonites that they would allow the Gibeonites to stay in the land and, and they wouldn't try to kill them or anything like that, but they would allow the Gibeonites to, to, to be in the land. Well, Saul sought to kill the Gibeonites at some point. We're not told exactly when this was, 
or what was happening, but a lot of people think that Saul was actually trying to establish a capital in Gibeah and was trying to drive him out. And Millie asked, did he save Mephibosheth or not? He did save Mephibosheth. He secured Mephibosheth, uh, protected him from uh, being hanged. He was the only person that he spared. Um, and so, uh, so the Gibeonites are seeking uh, justice for this. And so a lot of people think that there's some kind of underlying uh, assumptions in the text maybe that Saul was trying to establish a capital in Gibeah and so he was trying to put the Gibeonites to death or drive them out of the land in order to establish his capital there we're not quite sure and we're not really told the event that it, that they're referring to but at some point in Saul's reign he sought to 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 take care of the Gibeonites and this is going back on what jo uh, Joshua had already said and so the Gibeonites, David meets with the Gibeonites and he asks, okay, what's your price, you know, for this so we can be rid of this famine that's come on, on our land. And the Gibeonites required seven sons of Saul's house. And so this is a big ordeal for several reasons. First, this seems to raise some really big ethical questions. Um, in the in the text, because if you look at Deuteronomy, I've included in your verse packet there, Deuteronomy 24, 16, where the law of Moses actually says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So, well, what is this then? Because it seems like, um, you know, the blood of the son is paying for the sins of the father in this case, uh, in Saul's case, because God is, is, has, he's already called that action unjust. And now he's sending a famine on the nation of Israel. And the price for relief from the famine is that, uh, that they would give seven sons to be hanged. And when they give the seven sons, God relents and gives them rain again and pulls back the famine. So it seems to have appeased the Lord. Well, how can that be if he's already said it's unjust for a, for a son to die for the sins of the father? That seems to be um, uncalled for. All right. Um, so how do we deal with that? I mean, that's, that seems to be a really big deal. I've seen every people dealing with this in, in, in so many different ways. Everything from um, David really didn't have a conversation with the Lord about this and just scrubbing out the biblical text, um, which is, is certainly one way to handle it, but it's not the way you'd want to handle it, <laughs> right? I mean, the Bible is true, right? And every word of it's true. So what do we do with that then? Um, so some people see, hey, let's just scrub that part out and then it's fine, you know? Well, you still have the problem of there being a famine, them killing seven sons of Saul and the famine going away, um, you know? So there, there's that. There's, there's a whole bunch of ways that people have sought to deal with this. None, not, there's not a whole lot that are satisfactory. Um, but I, I think it seems relatively obvious. And the, the reason is because Saul did not just commit an individual sin. He didn't just sin against the Lord, in other words. Saul didn't just, you know, go out and commit an atrocity on his own. Um, for which his sons could not pay for his, pay his price. What he had done is he had violated an oath that the nation of Israel had made before Yahweh. Okay, that's different. He, Joshua and the entire nation made an oath before Yahweh that the Gibeonites shall live in our land. Saul had led the nation to violate that oath against the Gibeonites. Now, swearing an oath in Yahweh's name means that the swearers, in this case, it's the nation of Israel, 
ask that Yahweh bring the curses of that covenant upon them if they fail to keep their word. Why is that? Because when you associate Yahweh's name with something, if you don't fulfill that thing, you're basically saying that our inability to fulfill this covenant is the same thing as our God would do. You're associating God with your own uh, lack of faithfulness to the covenant. So you're dragging his name through the mud. It's similar to the, the command that you shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. In spite of what people may, may say, it's not merely saying the name of the Lord, like saying God or saying the Lord or even saying Yahweh. It's associating the name Yahweh or the, the Lord or God with something that is beneath him. And so you're, you're taking his name and you're dragging it through the mud. You'll remember when Moses was standing before the people and the Lord punished him by not allowing him to go to the, to the promised land. The reason that he didn't get to go to the promised land was because he had defiled the name of the Lord in front of the nation of Israel. And this was a tremendous concern for the Lord that you have, you have made my name mud in the eyes of the people and that will not be tolerated. And so the nation of Israel makes an oath to the Lord in Joshua's day and they invite the curses of the covenant upon them should they fail to keep it. Well, when they fail to keep it in Saul, the curses of the covenant fall upon them. And so it is actually the Lord's grace that he, he only killed seven of the sons uh, and he re relented on the, on the famine. He had every right to destroy the whole nation right there, bringing the curses of the covenant. Look at Joshua 9.15 and 9.20, how this is worded. Uh, it says, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, talking about the Gibeonites, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, this, and then 20, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. You don't have to scrub this out of the Old Testament. It makes perfect sense why this would actually work and why Deuteronomy would still be fine, um, that the Lord can still keep his word in Deuteronomy, that he doesn't allow the, the sins of the son to pay for the sins of the father, is that in, they invited the curse upon them by making this oath to begin with. And so David is in this situation where he has to deal with the sin of Saul, and he has to make um, propitiation, that substitution or that satisfaction of God's wrath for God's wrath by giving Saul's sons to pay for the sins of Saul. Um, so you have an example here in at the end of Second Samuel where the sons of the king pay for the sins of the nation, which is uh, not shouldn't be lost on us. Um, so. David is, has done this, and he has made propitiation for Saul's sins. And then right after this, David's men go to war with the Philistines. And what's told to us is specifically that they go to war with giants. And um, these giants from Gath are so fierce, the first attack nearly kills David. And you can see that in uh, 15, we'll, we'll read it here. There was a war uh, again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ish, uh, Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze who was, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zerariah, his brother of Joab, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there, were, there was again war with the Philistines at, at Gob. And then uh, Shib Shibakai, the, uh, the Hushathite, 
struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there again, uh, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of, now pay attention to this one, Elhanan, the son of Jerem or Gam, uh, the Bethlehemite, uh, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war with Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24, uh, 24 in number. And he, was all, he also was descended from the giants. And then he taunted Israel. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, the, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we have this report of David's mighty men helping to keep David off the battlefield and out of harm's way because he nearly fell. And you've got this little this little verse in here uh, where, wait a second, Elhanan strikes down Goliath the Gittite. A Gittite is just someone from Gath. Um, Goliath of Gath, I thought David struck down Goliath of Gath in the valley, in, in the, in the valley there uh, where he was, when he, before he was anointed or right when he was anointed king. I thought that was, I thought that was where, that was who struck down Goliath. So how do we make sense of this? A lot of people make a ton of hay about this particular passage. But if you look at, at 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 20, verse 5, it says there was again, this is the same report, um, there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And so most likely, what, what most people assume is that we have some text that's missing in 2 Samuel, in the text that we have from 2 Samuel. Here's what you need to know about um, the, the, the scripture that we've got from 2 Samuel, um, or from for first and 2 Samuel, actually. There are some chunks missing that we don't have, that we, that we don't have very early accounts of, that we have very late, like 9th century AD accounts of. And so there's some chunks of text that we've got missing. And what people would assume is that Chronicles is supplying the correct information here and that he's, the reference is to a brother of Goliath, not Goliath himself. David struck him down, of course. Uh, even the author of Samuel knows that. So, um, so Chronicles is, is probably telling us the, the correct information, supplying all the information here. Um, so this is kind of common. We can talk about text criticism, and I'm happy to answer questions if you have those kind of questions about the text, of the fact that we've got things missing from 2 Samuel and stuff like that. Uh, I'd be happy to answer those questions at the end if you, if you have them. But, um, but essentially, he strikes down Goliath, the, the brother of Goliath, um, the Gittite. And so uh, you get this report of David's mighty men. And then what do you have in the next section but David looking back to close first and second Samuel, looking back over the long saga of salvation, when Yahweh had delivered him from the clutches of all his enemies and not least of which from the clutches of Saul. He says that right there at the beginning of chapter 22, um, he, where, where he discusses that. But, but basically he is giving an account of all that the Lord has done for him. And, and you, may, you may remember, you may not a few weeks ago when I, I preached through Psalm 18, we see this same text from 2 Samuel echoed in Psalm 18. It's David writing a psalm, basically, and the author of 2 Samuel takes that psalm and, and supplies it here um, to provide us the context for which that takes place, where David is sort of coming to the end of his life, and he is reflecting on all that the Lord has done. and what I tried to bring out whenever I preached through Psalm 18 was that th there's a section in there where David talks about his righteousness. The Lord answered me according to my righteousness. He, he responded according to my righteousness. And it's not, D David then right after that doesn't just talk about his own righteousness, but the fact that God 
allowed him to do the things that he did. He equipped him, he trained him, he made him righteous. And so it's not, it should be understood not as what David has done for himself and what he has provided by his own hand and by his own goodness, but it should be understood as the actions of a great and powerful God who acted on behalf of David and who delivered him. And so David tells us that the Lord's deliverance of his people, his dealing justly with humanity, and his provision of righteousness is worthy of praise. And both Psalm 20, I mean, both uh, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are driving home that point that the, look at what all the Lord has done. Let me just look back over my life and just see what all the Lord has done. And I think that this is actually a great encouragement to us as we look at just what David, ha, David is sort of doing here in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18 is thinking back over his life. How many times does the scriptures call us as Christians to remember? To think back and remember. And, and this is, you know, even to my own shame, where I fill my head a lot of times with noise, whether it's listening to a podcast or uh, listening to music maybe, or you know, maybe watching a movie or something like that in downtime or, or whatever. It could, could even be reading a book in downtime. I fill my time with uh, whatever is available and how rare it is for me to just sit in complete silence. Do you ever think about that? How rare is it in our lives where we, we literally just sit in complete silence without tapping, without something in our ears, without doing anything. And we just think about all the things that the Lord has done for us over the course of our lives. I mean, when's the last time you did that? I know for me, it's been a long time, but it, but it is amazing what, you're, not only what you're able to recall that the Lord has done, but how encouraged you should be about the future, knowing that, man, the Lord has provided immensely for me. I've never been in want. I was listening to somebody this week talk about that in their own life, about how you add up the budget and it seems to never come out to the, it's never supposed to work, right? Like every month you're, you're financially, you're supposed to be short and somehow you always have enough. And then you work harder to try to get more and you seem to not be able to get more. Uh, but, and it's, it still ends up like it's not going to work out and it, and it just, and it does. And when you go back and you think about all those times the Lord has provided, doesn't it tell you a great bit about your future? Well, that's exactly what we come to in 23, 1 to 7, where David recounts all of these things. And I, I want to look at that just for a second. 23, 1 to 7, he says, now these were the last words of David. So now he's gone from thinking about the past in 22 to now thinking about the future. The oracle of David, the, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of, God, uh, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So this is God speaking to David. And he says this, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth, or perhaps it's from the land. For does not, and this is now David speaking, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper, all, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men 
are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Um, what is the king like? Based on the words of God. God is, you know, we often look at kings as vile, worthless people. And especially in America, we look at politicians as worthless individuals um, many times. But God says the king brings light out of darkness. Uh, when one rules justly, ruling with the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. He brings light out of the darkness is kind of the, the image there. And then second is this phrasing here where he says he makes grass to sprout from the earth. The word earth and land are the same word in Hebrew. And so he could mean the earth or he could mean the land. I think it's more potent if it's the land. And the reason why I think that is, is because you know, it, it kind of gives that image of the promised land being the land of milk and honey. And it's sort of like that, this, this image where not only does the king, when he rules in the fear of God, not only does he make, bring light out of darkness and represent God's rule on the earth, like in creation, you know, but he also makes the land worth living in. It works either way if it's the land of the earth, but I think it's a little bit more potent of an image for Israel to, to, you know, to have this image here of the, of the, the land being rained on, making the grass sprout. The promised land is the land of milk and honey. And so it makes it sort of like this image of truly making it a land of milk and honey. When the, the, when the king rules in accordance with God's will, when he actually is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God, when he is the one representing God to the people and representing the kingdom of God to the nations, uh, he gives to the earth grass. Uh, it, it's, it's like allowing the earth to actually fulfill its purpose, essentially. It's kind of the, the poetic imagery that's, that's represented there. Um, and so you, you have this, this beautiful picture, I think, in 22 and 23, where David looks back at what the Lord has done for him and then looks forward and says, Man, this is what a king really, really is when they rule as the Lord has intended them to rule, when they rule justly, when they rule in the fear of God. This is what it, they, they are to the people. Um, they're good and they're, they're God's stewards, if you will. So we leave that and we come back to a picture of David's mighty men who are serving in his military. And what this seems to be is evidence that God has had grace on David. Now, here's part of the reason why this is, and we're not going to read the whole thing because it's obviously very long and it's tons of names, basically, of people in his command. But he, here's one reason why it reiterates, and I think this is a sharp barb at the end of chapter 23, why it reiterates God's grace to him is that the list ends with Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite is one of his bodyguards. So here is this, and, and I don't, I think the, the, the author of 2 Samuel is simply leaving that name here to just kind of remember what Uriah was in this story. Uriah's death, his murder, was the beginning of the downfall of David's kingdom. How gracious is the Lord, reader, as you're reading this, how gracious has the Lord been to David, knowing that he committed this atrocity uh, against Uriah the Hittite, who was his personal bodyguard. Now, there's another person in this, um, this list, and I, I didn't have intention on bringing this person out. Uh, now, I can't remember where they are. I think it's in 34 here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eliam, you see this right here in 30, verse 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Now you might just gloss over that. Um, you might remember Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the one whose counsel was like the counsel of God, uh, that, that the author told us. Ahithophel, uh, was a counselor to David. 
when David was run off by Absalom, Ahithophel switched his allegiance over to Absalom. And I made mention of this back then, I think, but I, I just kind of glossed over it. I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Ahithophel, do you remember who his granddaughter is? His granddaughter is Bathsheba. Eliam is the father of Bathsheba. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Both of these men were powerful people in David's military. Eliam, uh, Eliam was basically a member of the Secret Service, essentially. And Ahithophel is a counselor of David, a chief counselor of David. And, uh, a, a, you know, obviously we don't know why uh, Ahithophel switched his allegiance to Absalom. That's not told to us in the text, what his motivations were. But David did kill his grandson-in-law, you know, so that may, be, that may have been, uh, may have had something to do with it. Who knows? But both of these men were also very close to David, and, and, yet, um, and yet David sinned against all of them in some form or fashion, especially Uriah obviously murdered him. And so then it comes back to how gracious is, is the Lord to David? Do you, do you remember what he's done? How gracious is he to David? And so you end this section, even though it's a report of David's men, with that, that tone of the Lord's grace to David, in the, even in the midst of his sin. Um, and so it seems, uh, it's, at, the, at the end of this whole section, in chapter 24, you get David dealing with his own sin. So you had the sin of Saul at the beginning, and now you have at the end, David dealing with his own sin. And I want to read part of this because, man, it's perhaps a little disconcerting, but, um, you know, it, it, it's, 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 um, it's important, I think, that we, we remember it. 24.1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. The Lord incited David against the nation of Israel, saying, go number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who is with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number all the people that I may know the, Lord, uh, the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord, the King, still see it. But why does my Lord, the King, delight in this thing? But the King's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the King to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began it. So they, they go through and they number all the people and they come up with a sum in Israel, 800,000 valiant men, who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So you can understand, let, let's think about this. Obviously, we get a theological explanation for this in verse 1. The Lord kindled, his anger was kindled against Israel, and the Lord incited David to basically do this action that would essentially end up getting him punished and getting the nation of Israel in a lot of trouble. And so... Um, you can understand from, let's, let's not think about it from a theological level at first. Let's think about it. And uh, Sean asks a question that I'm about to answer. Um, so let's think about it from a practical level at first. Okay. We, un we can understand certainly why David wants to do this census. He has just come across the river and the nation of Israel is torn apart. They're against him. And so what do you want to do? Well, you want to figure out who's with you and who's against you, right? Because look, if another nation attacks you, don't you want to know how many men you have in your army? Well, it looks like the, the census, what did the census gather? It gathered 800,000 valiant men. That's what they counted. They counted men who were able to draw the sword. It wasn't just a census of the number of people that were in the land like we might do in America. This was the number of people who could draw a sword and, and obviously the same in, the, in Judah. And so, um, so they take a census and the census 
the historian tells us in Second Samuel, motivated was motivated by Yahweh because of his anger against Israel. Now, we don't know why the anger of the Lord was kindled. That's not told to us. And that doesn't really matter for all intents and purposes here. But he, for one reason or another, his anger was kindled against Israel. And so he incited David to, to go about and do this, this census. And so he does. Now, the reason why this is bad, and you, you have to think about counting men uh, in the past, is there's a couple of reasons. It's told to us in texts of scripture that the Lord counts his people. Okay, the Lord is the one that counts his people. That's told to us in Numbers. But um, another reason is because think about Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon? Gideon wanted a big army. He wanted a large army. Why did he want a large army? The same reason you would want a large army. Because if you're going to go fight against people, you want a ton of people on your side, right? Who fights the battles for Israel? Yahweh does. David doesn't fight the battles. The people, the men don't fight the battles. Yahweh fights the battles. What is David doing by counting the men? Oh, let me get to my slides here. Sorry. He's putting his confidence in the flesh rather than in Yahweh. He's forgotten. These men don't fight your battles. And Joab is actually telling him right here. Joab, for all the mistakes he makes, you know, has some good points too. And he, and he's, he's telling David rightly, why, this is evil. Why are you doing this? You don't need to do this. The Lord's going to add to your people. Don't worry about that. The Lord will take care of your battles. But nevertheless, David decides he's going to do it. And so the Lord brings a punishment upon David. And he basically lets David choose. And he's got some choices of what his punishment is going to be. It'll either be three years of famine, it'll be three months in flight from the enemy, or it'll be three days of plague. And so David, rather than decide what he's going to do or, or choose, he lets the Lord decide because he says to himself, the Lord is merciful and men are not. So just don't let me fall into the hands of men. But whether it's a famine or whether it's plague, just you decide, Lord. And so the result was the Lord chose plague and killed 70,000 people from the nation of Israel. What does this do to, to David losing 70,000? Uh, it, it basically goes against his counting of the people, doesn't it? It takes away a number of people from his army. The same thing that God did actually to Gideon, not by plague, obviously, but, but took away men from his military and, uh, and so that he had to trust in the Lord to deliver him. And so again, here, God is, is doing basically that. Now, most significant to this whole narrative of the census and its aftermath is David's realization that in the end, he's got to make a sacrifice to the Lord and he's going to go make amends for his sin so that the Lord will relent from his punishment of the plague and killing. And so he buys a threshing floor. And he buys the threshing floor from Arana. And this site actually becomes the future site of the temple of Yahweh. So if you track with what's happening, even in the midst of punishment, all right, think about this for a second. Even in the midst of punishment, the punishment led to David giving a sacrifice before the Lord, which led him to the threshing floor of Arana which led him to the purchase of the threshing floor, which led him to setting up the place where the temple would be set, where his son Solomon would see it through to completion. So even in the midst of punishment, it still comes around to enabling the people of God to meet with the Lord. So we, we end 2 Samuel on this close where you're like, wow, this, this sort of leaves a bad taste in my mouth you know, from the way that this ends. But 25 ends with this verse, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offering and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So 
even in the midst of all that, there's still this twinge coming of God's grace in that he is, a, he is setting up the long game for him to actually meet with his people as Solomon will, will build this temple. Um, so did the Lord or Satan incite David? Explain, Babs, why you asked that question. Because in First Chronicles 21, it says that Satan and Yeah. So uh, I, I will tell you the answer, and you probably won't be surprised when I say this. The answer is yes. The Lord incited David. Satan incited David. Um, so I think it's really helpful to see that there is a uh, a collision of a collision of wills. Um, the Lord's will is obviously here to punish the nation of Israel, and He's going to do that through David uh, doing a census, sinfully doing a census, uh, and He's going to punish the nation of Israel through it. There's no getting around that. I mean, the text says it plain as day. Um, Satan also has a will in this. And Satan's desire is to bring accusation on the nation of Israel. That's what his name means, the accuser. So his desire is to bring uh, accusation on the nation of Israel. So he has a will here to incite David to accomplish the same end. God's sovereign over it all and wills it to happen. Satan is a tool who his will is in, you know, coincidence with God and incites David as well. David also has a will here. And in spite of the desires of Joab, he wants to count his people. So David, let's not forget about him. He is also 100% responsible for the decision that he made because he wanted to do it. The only one who is blameless in this situation is the Lord, whose judgment was holy and righteous and just, and he had every right to judge the nation of Israel. And the reason we get in James, um, him saying, the Lord is not tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one is because, and, and the Lord does not commit evil. We believe that and he doesn't sin. It's because his heart in this matter um, is pure and righteous and good. Satan's is not. David's is not. God's is. And his purpose is to bring about an ultimately good outcome for both David and for the nation of Israel. So God remains blameless in all of this, and yet sovereign over it all. Uh, we see this also in the death of Christ, where Peter will tell the people, you killed Jesus, but it was according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. He ordained it to happen. Jesus was coming to die. He was coming to die at the hands of sinful men. God ordained that to happen, yet his purposes were ultimately 100% good. And that makes him sin free. So difficult to wrestle with those things. It really is theological, theologically very difficult. But um, I think that's the best way to make sense of it. Any other questions or? All right. Sean, did that answer your question why taking the census was bad? Yes, it did. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, let's um let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a time to just go through um first and second Samuel. What a blessing it's been for me personally, just to go through first and second Samuel and um analyze the events that took place and and think about them. Uh, in the ways that your word has presented them to us. And um, it's been rewarding for me. And I, I'm grateful for that. 
And um, I, I pray that that's true for everyone else as well. And I pray that at the end of this, as difficult as some of these passages can be and as, as hard to wrap our mind around as they can be and challenging and just, um, you know, I pray that they would cause us to think and just really cause us to even wrestle and, and that your spirit would be there with us the whole way, uh, guiding us through it and sanctifying us in your word and rewarding us in that wrestling and in that thinking and in that struggling process of trying to understand your word, that, that we would have great reward there of, in the end, trusting the God who wrote them, who inspired them, who um, gave to us and preserved these words for us, that we might read them and, uh, and, and grow and be corrected and, and be challenged and, and rebuked and, and be trained in righteousness and be equipped for every good work. I, I, I just pray that that would be true for us as we have wrestled with your word. And as we go into first Kings and the rest of the old Testament, I pray that you would continue to be there with us wrestling through those, those difficult passages and even, and, um, and encouraging us along the way um, as we read your word, that we would grow in our appreciation and our love, our admiration for the words that you have preserved for us in these scriptures. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, everyone. Thank y'all. Hey, thanks Bye. a lot.